What's the problem? I think I'm the problem. Welcome back. It's episode 133 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge at the Epstein and Hughes School of Law. Yes, while all the other law schools are doing their courses on Zoom, we're the only one found exclusively on Chat Roulette. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter and guy who's really dining out on the fact that social distancing reduces the opprobrium around having a restraining order against you. And I am joined, as always, by the Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg of the conservative legal movement. I won't tell you who's who, but Richard is on his way to Chino rolling on the Grey Goose. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. So, uh, fellas, how are you holding up? I was wondering as I was preparing for this, which of you is closer to going stir crazy right now? And I feel like it's probably John. Well, that's because of his general idleness. Well, also because, well, (laughs) here here was my calculus, John. You're sort of a crypto dandy. I feel like you really, you really need a nice restaurant a couple of times a week. You're probably dying for a crisp haircut. I feel like Richard has this very rich interior life. And if he's got a computer and a chess set, he's probably fine. It's, it's actually it's Richard's wife. I, I have I have an important question. What is an interior life? What is this thing you're talking about? <laughs> I do without material comforts because I play chess. I do crossword puzzles. Yeah, I right. read books and so forth and go stir crazy all along. Yeah, see, I bet Richard's bouncing off the walls. See, nope. here, I'm just stockpiling canned goods, water, and making sure my guns are in operating order. There's a lot of stuff to do here. Well, right. No, I mean, look, the difference between is I saw your lanai or porch out in the back, John. <laughs> and, and, I mean, you actually Definitely have direct access to civilization. <laughs> I'm sitting in a very nice apartment, which becomes somewhat more oppressive when you could only go out one door and everything you see along Broadway and Central Park West is boarded up. Um, and so if you're not near a business district, you aren't aware of the fact that it's closed down in quite the immediate way that you are here. And it really is quite extraordinary. There are almost nobody hanging around Columbus Circle or going up Broadway. Um, you feel only slightly kind of silly if you actually stop for red lights when you're on Central Park West because there are no cars there. Um, and it is somewhat um, – to put it mildly, somewhat disconcerting. I mean, either this city opens up or it will die. So, I mean, that's the lesson I think that one has to to have. How it opens up may be a subject of debate, but whether or not you open up retail restaurants, hotels, whatever it is, at some degree, if you don't do this, this place will wither on the dime, on the vine. All right. So let's start there, actually. I mean, we have got a good old-fashioned federalism fight on our hands right now. So a, a lot of parts of the country, especially on the coast, now have one eye on the virus, one eye on trying to open back up. So you've got a couple of multi-state coalitions that are trying to figure out how to get things open again. You've got essentially an Acela Corridor group, which is New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. And then you've got this West Coast pact with California, Oregon, and Washington. You also have, at the same time, the president trying to guide the reopening efforts. And when he was pressed on the tension there a few days ago, the president said, and this is the quote, when somebody is the president of the United States, the authority is total. John, how does that claim get graded out in your con law class? <laughs> well, God, we're not allowed to fail anybody these yeah. days. Actually, all the top schools have gone to pass-fail grading this semester to recognize the tender mercies of our students who we're about to throw into the, you know, the shark, the shark pen of litigation. But nevertheless, I, I just. I, I don't see where he's getting that from. Uh, it's quite clear. And in fact, he's contradicting himself because people were demanding he impose a nationwide lockdown. And he correctly said at the time, just I think two, three weeks ago, that the Constitution says the state governors are in charge of the lockdowns. And I think the state governors are got to be in charge of lifting the lockdowns. There are things that the president can do, uh, not because of his own constitutional power, but because of authority that's been given to him by Congress. He can 
um, you know, reopen interstate commerce. You know, he can, you know, have the airlines, uh, airlines and highways, railroads opened up. But I don't think there's any statute before you can get to the Constitution where Congress has given the president the power to try to open businesses. Most of the uses of the Commerce Clause are about stopping the economic activity, not opening it up. So it's interesting, even if you look at the Public Health Services Act, it talks about stopping people from traveling across state borders who might be infected. It doesn't actually talk about what you're allowed to do once the, right, the contagion is over. So you could just reverse that order against travel, but I don't see what else you could do. So I've seen maybe one or two people on the conservative side defending the president saying, well, the Defense Production Act would allow the president to reopen the economy and supersede all these lockdowns. But I just don't think that's true. If you go look at the Defense Production Act, it talks about requiring businesses to give priority to federal uh, demands for war-related war goods, goods necessary for the national defense. So I think of the Defense Production Act, the president can go and tell 3M to make masks or GM to make ventilators. But the Obamacare case, this is an important point. I think uh, conservatives won the Obamacare case too well because one of the important points in the Obamacare case was that the court held that the Commerce Clause can't be used to force people into interstate commerce, to make them engage in business. It only says it only allows the government to regulate you once you get off the couch and decide to sell and buy things in the markets, but it can't force you to do it. So I, I just don't see where the president thinks he gets the power from to reopen the economy against the wishes of the state governors. Well, I disagree and agree both, but let me start with the following <laughs> point. One of the things that Trump did not do very well, because he's not a constitutional lawyer, is to distinguish the power of the federal government, Congress and the president together, from the power of the president acting alone. One of the things that's so utterly ironic about this is that the newer versions of the Commerce Clause, for example, in a piece that Bill Galston wrote this morning in the Wall Street Journal, uh, take the view that the Commerce Clause had its authoritative exposition back in 1824 in Gibbons and Ogden, where essentially it had to deal with interstate transactions. Uh, if you're looking at the Constitution as a source of power, under the federal commerce power, it's plenary in the sense that now how we can regulate mining, agriculture, and so forth. This is not a case where the president has—I disagree with John on this point—to force the things open. It's a question where the president, if he had the backing of Congress, could say, look, under these circumstances, I give an order. Uh, we cannot seriously argue that shutting down all of American business doesn't affect commerce or trade or manufacture or anything else. What I do is I basically pass the government order, the governor's orders, make them invalid, and now if the businesses want to open, they can if they don't want to open, we can't. But I think, in effect, that way is fine. The question, though, is can the president act on his own, which is a very different question. I think John is 100 percent correct to say that if you start looking at the various statutes that talk about what the appropriate scope of the uh, presidential power is delegated from Congress, they don't come close to dealing with this particular situation. So at that point, he has to act on his own hook. There is a famous case called the steel seizure case, which sort of grades these things into three levels. One level is that the president's power is so weak that if he tries to act without Congress, he's a dead man. In another set of cases, it turns out when he um, acts against Congress, um, he's a dead man. If he has Congress behind him, it's fine. So it's that middle category where Congress is silent. And here, I think the president would probably lose that debate uh, because when the steel seizure case came along, one of the things that people pointed to were the other particular statutes which either gave or withheld power from the president, and they therefore concluded under the circumstances of the case that he simply did did not have the power to commandeer mines and to tell them they had to engage in war production, the most famous opinion in that case being that of Justice Jackson, even though it was only a concurring opinion. I think in this intermediate class, uh, Trump will lose. Now, when you get to the governors, I think there's actually a different problem. Um, People have attacked Trump for being king. He's not king. But these governors are essentially acting as though they're 
princes with absolute arbitrary and total power. There's not a single one of them who's decided to explain what the source of their authority is. They're just governors. None of them have had any legislative authorization for it. They give no reasons for it. They have no administrative review. They are all little kings in their own principality. Richard, Richard, may I interrupt you there just because this was something I was preparing for us to talk about. And I I just want to give people a few examples to to kind of make make concrete what you're talking about here. So one of the figures who has been getting a lot of attention the past few weeks has been the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, partially because she's being flagged as a potential running mate for Joe Biden. But in Michigan, she has prevented, for example, garden centers from staying open. In California, they're keeping surfers out of the water. In Vermont, they've restricted what big box stores can sell to essential items. So you can keep your Target or your Walmart open but you can't, for instance, sell clothing. Are these plenary powers where governors or mayors can prohibit anything well, I mean, they want, or are there real legal limits on this? See, what happened, that's the interesting question. And, you know, Ren, forgive this. Some nice woman gave me an illustration where uh, what happened is that uh, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, decided that uh, he was going to suspend rents for 60 days. If you looked at the statute which he claimed the power to suspend rents, i.e., you can't evict if they don't pay rent, it gave him only 30 days with a right of a 30-day renewal. He claims 60 at the front end. He can't do that. On the other hand, who is going to challenge him becomes a serious problem. So if you, the only way you can do this is to do the same thing at the state level that you do at the federal level. Ask yourself, is this something which is explicitly authorized by the federal or the state emergency statute? Is it something that's explicitly forbidden or is it something in between? And most of these cases are in between. And every one of these governors is claiming the same kind of power that they say that Trump cannot possibly get with respect to the federal government. And the result are kind of disastrous. In Chicago, they're closing public parks. They're closing public parks. In Michigan, I mean, the one thing that people really need in this thing is fresh air. And they say, well, they're littering. Well, for God's sake, then clean up the litter or decide to put capacity limitations on the parks like they do in various restaurants. They do pretty much whatever they want. And and so it is just, to me, an absolute consummate kind of irony uh, that what they do is they basically thrash after Trump, who has been very erratic and knows full well that he can't do this on his own. They're doing it on their own. Now they're going to form compacts. And in the meantime, what they've done is they've ground this economy to a halt. And what they then do is they blame the president for not getting on his stick fast enough. Well, why should he get on his stick fast enough? He doesn't have power to do anything anyhow. So I think the political dimension on this thing is pretty dreadful. Trump is, as always, over his head in this stuff, somewhat inept. His campaign. I don't like the doctors at all. I think that they're pretty wrong on this at Bricks and uh, Fauci. Uh, I don't know about his technical staff, but the governors are simply dreadful. And if you were to ask any of them, explain why it is Governor um, Pritzker in uh, Illinois, that you said there'd be tens and ten thousands of deaths in the state unless you shut it down. And now you have about a thousand, maybe a few more, a few less. You're only off by an estimate of a thousand, and you haven't changed your position. I think somebody has to ask them these questions because all of them are acting as though they are despots. And I think we ought to be extremely concerned about that. Uh, you're not going to get federal relief from that. You may not even get state relief from that. But I think the moral case has to be made so that the legitimate political pressure can go in order to get these guys to slowly but indisputably to start to back down. And I think already protests are beginning very early, very small, very nascent. This goes on a couple more days. All the federal grant money runs out, and we will start to see a much more ugly confrontation at state levels as governors will face a very angry electorate. I want to ask you guys about a specific species of this. And John, I'm going to bring you in on this so you can you can shoehorn that <laughs> that observation in. It's probably related. On the last show, we talked about states that were trying to shut down gun stores and how the public health dimensions of this interact with the Second Amendment. We have subsequently seen similar arguments about this in regard to the First Amendment with issues about religious services, especially with Passover and Easter. So the mayor of Louisville, for instance, tried to unilaterally ban drive-in church services for Easter. And that was slapped down in the in the courts. And the Justice Department says it's monitoring these kind of restrictions to decide whether or not they're going to take action. So, John, there's obviously there is a legitimate public health interest about packing people into churches or synagogues or whatever their house of worship may be. But how do you balance that with the First Amendment protections around freedom of religion and freedom of assembly? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm Good glad you asked that, Troy. <laughs> Good luck, John. Well, they both, they both involve packing. One is heat and one is congregation. <laughs> so, but I, I guess I differ a little bit with Richard, and I think it maybe it comes through in this point, in that I think the governors, when they're engaging in these lockdowns, they do have an authority uh, because the states have the police power. And out here in California, I looked up some law called the California Emergency Services Act. That it's, it's incredibly sweeping. It says if the governor declares a national emergency, a state emergency, emergency. Then, yeah, he gets all of the police power of state government, which means he can do anything. And what Richard's demanding, uh, and these are the kind of lawsuits that used to survive until the New Deal cases, was that you would be able to challenge state laws like that because they're arbitrary. You know, that you could demand that there be some you know, reason behind the law, that the government justify itself. Since uh, I think since the New Deal cases, right? The, the we've got what we you know this is Richard's hobby horse, the rational basis test, which, uh, aside from the gay marriage cases, the federal courts have never struck down a state law as being irrational. So, I, I just don't. Th I, I agree with Richard in his policy outcomes and the best interpretation of the Constitution. But current law, I would suspect, would uphold these until a certain point. And it's your point, Troy, that when it runs into individual rights, that's where you where will see courts get more involved. The problem with the religion cases is because of Justice Scalia's opinion in Smith versus Employment Division, where he says that, you know, if churches are not singled out, if they're just treated the same as everybody else by generally applicable laws, in that case, it was a, the criminal drug laws then you don't get any special treatment. You don't get, uh, I'm not, not you, but religious minorities. There's no free exercise of religion claim that gets the highest protections that would apply for something like free speech. Now, it's interesting, the Second Amendment might be treated differently, but we don't know. You know, there are these cases actually at the Supreme Court right now, which ask the court to say, what is a permissible restriction on the right to bear arms. And so we've been waiting to see, is the Second Amendment going to get treated like free speech, where uh, the government has to have a compelling interest and it has to be the most narrowly tailored regulation possible? Or does it get some kind of intermediate scrutiny that's much like the ones that religious minorities get? It, and it makes a huge difference in these cases, Troy, because uh, take the case you're talking about out of Kentucky about the um, religious worshipers. Uh, you know, if if they if they got the benefit of the kind of judicial protection that applies for free speech, then the church could say, look, your regulation is invalid because there's lots of other ways that we can still have our service and do somewhat something towards protecting against the spread of the virus. Suppose people sat six feet apart in the pews, right? Or we had people come in staggered groups and had multiple services. The government just can't come in and stop the services in a blanket fashion if it was given, if religious liberty had the same protections as free speech. But uh, under the protections it has now, it's treated like everybody else. Uh, it's hard to see whether they I, – I, I, I hate to say it, but I think the case law says that the churches lose. John, I disagree on one point. I think, in effect, you're right to say that trying to challenge this in the federal courts after Smith, particularly since the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, does not apply to the states, even though it was put into the first version of that that was declared unconstitutional. I'm talking about challenges under, in state court under state law. And it, that's what I was referring to earlier. Uh, and I, you know, that you can't generalize. Yeah, These statutes are, to some extent, extremely broad, but they're not as broad. And I gave you one illustration where it said you got 30 days and the governor decided he was going to take 60. Um, and if you looked at the section right after it, it said you could renew the 30 for another 30 days. So he's overcome. The question is, will the state courts decide to do anything about this? Because I do think it's a sort of a matter of a state challenge under a state constitution, it's going to be very hard to get that thing at the federal court in order to have them interpret what the state constitution's about. Uh, my view about it is, in a place like California, the great tragedy is that all branches of government are essentially under the control of the progressive part of the government. And so I don't think there'll be any sentiment on the part of the California Supreme Court to intervene and so forth. On the other point, I, I kind of think that, unfortunately, you're right. Smith, I regard as one of the most dreadful decisions in 
the history of the United States Supreme Court because it took two very specific guarantees. Well, there's a lot of candidates for I know that, title, but this but one's, I mean, this is not Dred Scott. It's a bad decision. In terms, it's a very bad decision. You get two specific guarantees and you read them both out of the Constitution. Um, so it becomes a bland equal protection clause with no accommodations whatsoever. And I think that that's clearly wrong. Uh, but uh, I just don't see anybody winning at this particular point. There's the other problem. I mean, you want to hold services on Sunday. You bring the action on Monday, rather on Saturday. By the time you get to Monday, the day is over. And what is he supposed to do about all of this? So I, I, I concluded when I wrote about this on March 9th on the Defining Ideas column that even though the in principle case for some judicial intervention under the police power in these emergency cases was thought about. It's essentially, it's gonna be a dead hand. What nobody thought at that time, myself included, was that anybody would go to quite the extremes that these governors have done. And so uh, the more it turns out that this thing seems to be in some sense ebbing, if you look at new cases by traditional measures, the more aggressive become the assertions of the police power. So everything is becoming more disproportionate rather than Less, and I still do not see how there's going to be a powerful constitutional challenge. I think what there's going to be is a national and constitutional tragedy as this thing continues to play out with the level of dislocation, including, I might add, increased deaths by virtue of the fact you've shut down hospitals with respect to all of their normal functions. And we've already seen a rise in deaths in New York State. And what the governor does wrongly is he says, well, that's all because of the virus. No, it's not because of the virus. It's because of the closed down. And it's a cost of the close down. And every time you think you're saving a life from the shutdown because of social distancing by law, you're losing one, maybe two lives to some other cause. And what you're doing is you're treating those as a function of the virus rather than treating them as a function of the close down, which I regard as just utterly intellectually indefensible. Is the analysis of these state restrictions any different when it comes to abortion, because Texas has controversially deemed by executive order that abortion providers are non-essential services needed to be shut down in the midst of the pandemic, which touched off a lawsuit. The Fifth Circuit has now allowed limited exceptions a few nights ago, which probably keeps that away from the Supreme Court. But you've got similar challenges going on in Alabama, Arkansas, Iowa, Louisiana, Ohio, Oklahoma, Tennessee, a bunch of red states. John, are the, are the prospects for those kinds of challenges any different than the ones that we've been talking about thus far? Not really. I, mean, I, I find it these uh, I think of them as abortion absolutists. It's quite bizarre that uh, you know, we're in the midst of the greatest public health crisis, a pandemic that we've had in right. 100 years. And the <laughs> first thing the you think open, about yeah. is abortion, right? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 like uh, the 9-11 attacks, abortion. I mean, so why would that be the first thing people would think of? I, it, I just don't get. Uh, but it seems to me, uh, now abortion is also a right that doesn't get that kind of free speech protection. It, uh, and also we don't know because of Justice Kennedy leaving the court, being replaced by Justice Kavanaugh, and Kennedy was the fifth vote for the continued viability of uh, Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. But the court's test is a strange um, – the state can't place an undue burden on your right to an abortion. But Texas says we're in the middle of a public health crisis. All medical resources are being put onto fighting the pandemic. It's not just, you know, abortion's not being singled out. It's all other surgeries, except those that are life-threatening, are essentially being given second priority. I don't see how abortion gets more right to medical resources than, say, someone who's about— to have, uh, you know, who's about to have heart failure. You know, if, if, uh, if, let that's, me say, that's essentially an argument that's being made, I think, by these abortion mm -hmm. providers is that they have a, abortion is some kind of special medical procedure that gets elevated above everything else, even a pandemic. I, I, I just don't, I can't see the courts. Now, there They're was a trial. that, but John, the suppose we do it the following way. Suppose you say, I need an abortion in order to save the life of a mother. 
Oh, and I take it that the Texas that the Texas regulation still allows that. that well, if, and if that have, to me, I mean, it is ironic. We go back to the traditional grounds for abortion pre Roe v. Wade in order to justify the statute. Uh, but I think your basic point is put simply: if it's elective surgery, abortion stands on the same footing as everything else. The difficulty, of course, with respect to all of these definitions about elective is it's a very profound one. It's elective in month one. But if you don't do it then, by the time you get to month four, it becomes mandatory because you're going to die. And it turns out it's a lot riskier later on than it is earlier. That's one of the reasons why we're going to start to see a spike in death, because elective surgeries presumably have some medical benefits. Some fraction of them, if they're delayed, will turn into deadly situations. Some fraction of those will turn into death. And so there's sort of the complete misallocation of resources. I did one little study. Uh, there have been, by now, very dubious numbers. They're getting worse, but let's say 25 to 27,000 deaths from the coronavirus. Um, in the annual year, there's about 2,700,000 deaths in the United States. And, you know, it's well under 1% of them that are related to the flu. The overwhelming number of these things comes from first heart attacks and then cancers, between them amounting to close to 50% of the deaths. So everything has been put completely out of sorts in this particular case. And if you're trying to ask the number of quality of life years that you can save by investing more in the virus, as opposed to in these other things, uh, the equations become very, very muddy. And it's not at all clear that we're doing the right thing. And one of the great dangers of the epidemiological models is they never take into account collateral losses from the deprivation of other kinds of services if you Trevor, mandate social distancing. Mandate. It's just how that, that comes out. You know, I, I agree with you. You have to make these uh, difficult trade-offs about, you know, where, where we're going to put medical resources. And you could say maybe economists should do that, maybe not clinical doctors or maybe public health, whatever. The last people I think who should be doing it are, are judges. And that's essentially what these lawsuits are calling on judges to do is to make decisions about which kind of medical procedures get priority over others in the middle of a public health emergency. I thought that just strikes me as and, I, and, I, and the Fifth Circuit rejected that idea. In fact, I was thinking if there were ever going to be a case where the court might actually overrule Casey or Planned Parenthood at the Supreme Court, it would be a case like this, which would have the most unfavorable facts for people who want to press this abortion right absolute over everything else. Well, again, I think it's harder than that. I mean, and the longer it goes, I think it's more things. What we're saying, in effect, is that the rational basis test allows you a lot of discretion in making trade-offs. And let's assume that we accept that. But if you can then come in and show uh, that the net effect of every one of these trade-offs is to increase costs and to increase deaths, and there is no serious dispute about that as the numbers get better, uh, then I don't think it's such a crazy case. I mean, there's a recent study coming out just today from Israel, um, which essentially says whether you take the Israeli approach, the Swedish approach, or various American approaches, the life cycle of the virus is pretty much the same. And so that the redundancies of having these mandated separations produce very little benefit. Suppose that's established to 100%, and the government concedes the point that the studies are accurate. Uh, can they really defend saying that we would rather save one person from death by the coronavirus, even if it means 20 deaths by cancer and heart attacks? Trade-offs. Right. I mean, I, I'm just, I, you know, and, and will courts do this? Well, they're not going to do it if they're disputed facts, but they may do it if they're admitted facts. John, and I think we're moving in that direction myself. John, I know you've been spending some time lately thinking and writing about China and its role in all this. You had this piece in National Review uh, with Ivana Stradner called How to Make China Pay. So since we can't send a bill to Beijing, walk us through what this looks like. Uh, yeah, I think this is a also an interesting issue, which is, uh, first, there's this evidence, I think, coming out that seems— I think it seems indisputable that the Chinese government went to great lengths to try to uh, cover up, obscure, reduce the information available about the pandemic in, Jan in late in December and January. Uh, to, and, and the World Health Organization, I think, enabled them to do this uh, to the point where uh, China had imposed internal 
quarantines on people leaving the province where the city of Wuhan is located, but still allow people to fly from that province to the rest of the world, including the United States, for, I think, about a week or two. Uh, and Victor Davis Hanson has talked about this quite a bit in his uh, work. So it seems to me, this is, uh, this is again, this is Richard's field. This is like, I hate to say this, but this is actually like a Roman law problem and riparian hey. rights. I know, I know, I couldn't help oh, thinking oh, about this when no. I was writing my piece. I'm so, I feel so bad for everybody. But uh, if you, you, can think about it, you can think about it this way, which is uh, China is like a polluter, right? They uh, get the benefit of the conduct, which is, keeping their wet markets open or having an authoritarian government which creates the illusion that they know what they're doing or whatever. And then they pollute the rest of the world. The rest of the world suffers the harm of their recklessness and their negligence, which is the $2 trillion we're going to lose every month probably in the United States from a shutdown economy, the deaths, 20,000 deaths now, going to be more, the hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who have gotten the, the illness, probably going to be a lot more. China will not stop unless they are forced to what we you know what we call internalize the costs of their conduct, right? Otherwise, they'll just keep polluting. They'll just keep doing what they're doing merrily because they never suffer the costs that everyone else has to bear for their conduct. So how do you do that? Well, you can't sue China. They're not going to obey. They've already been sued and lost about the South China Sea. They're not going to obey. The World Health Organization's kind of in their pocket now. So I say you got to do some things what we used to call self-help. You have to take measures against China uh, involving their property and their goods and trade that are in our territory and make them pay by seizing them or by putting sanctions on them or not letting their scientists and students come and study in the United States anymore keeping them excluded from different technological markets like 5G networks or bio, uh, biotech or pharmaceuticals, or even, and this is something the United States used to do when we've uh, in, you know, been at odds with other countries, economic sanctions like freezing or even seizing their assets in the United States. So I think there's a whole menu of things we can still do. And all of it's not about punishing China, it's about forcing them to feel the economic costs of what they're doing so that they will stop and do better next time. John, um, the problem about self-help is it works both ways. And the problem about self-help is it doesn't work unless you have your allies who are prepared to go along with you. Uh, so what we can do is we can seize Chinese assets that are located in the United States, and then the uh, Chinese government could decide to seize American assets that are located in China, at which point you have collateral damages. We can decide that we're going to exclude China from our 5G networks, and China will decide that when it enters into a deal with somebody else, it's going to exclude us from them as well. Uh, Self-help essentially, I don't think, can do the job under those circumstances where the retaliation is going to be really powerful. And strangely enough, it's going to be justified because in the world of self-help, we're the first mover in this thing and they are not going to be. I agree with you that there is nothing more reprehensible, reprehensible than what the Chinese did with respect to this, trying to conceal the danger. Uh, but, you know, then somebody else is going to come along and says, well, misrepresentations are a theory. And I would certainly not support this view and said, well, the American governments have systematically hyped the level of this crisis, forcing us into really expensive uh, shutdowns, which I believe they have done. I would never want to say it was fraudulent. Uh, but, you know, the consequences are real. No suit's going to do that, because what happens is, if you're trying to talk about American immunities under both federal and under state law, uh, the discretionary function sort of is absolutely uh, at its zenith in these particular cases where you're trying to manage a wholesale situation. So there's going to be no lawsuit here. There's going to be no lawsuit in the international law. And there's going to be no support uh, for the self-help type situation. The only thing you've got going for you is moral suasion. And with the Chinese, you looked at their numbers. And, you know, maybe they were right to begin with. But my guess is they're probably off in terms of the deaths that they reported and the cases that they reported by one, two, maybe even three orders of magnitude. I have zero trust in any data that comes out there because none of it remotely looks like the data that has come out of any other place. They just shut it down under these circumstances. Now, China's a big place, and I think that probably they were able 
domestically to contain it with some degree of sensibilities and so forth, but still, um, they are just outright prevaricators. Um, you look at the situation in Italy, you can see what the problem is, is that the comorbidity and the age of the population means that this thing will continue to go on even after the epidemic has passed with respect to the general population. Comorbidities double, triple the rate of mortality. Age does the same thing. So if you want to compare the likelihood of death of a healthy 25-year-old uh, with an 80-year-old person who has comorbidities, uh, the first case, the death rate is going to be under 1% of the population by a fairly substantial amount. In the second case, it's going to be 40, 50, or even 60% of the population. That's where all the losses come from. They should be chalked up at least in part to the comorbidities, but nobody is doing that. So we have huge amounts of misinformation coming out right now, getting worse, not better. And I just don't think there's anything but a political solution. And frankly, I don't see that happening because the number of people who are prepared to take a step back and to re-examine the American position as a matter of first principles is stunningly small. Let me take you guys a, a little bit further afield just to get off of the coordinates of this story for a minute. And John, I, I want to get you in on another controversy from the last week. This is the case of the USS Theodore Roosevelt out in the Pacific. So on this vessel, there is an outbreak of COVID-19, after which the commander proceeds to send an email to a couple dozen people, both inside and outside of his chain of command, trying to push a decision to get those sailors off of that ship. That memo leaks to the San Francisco Chronicle. The commander ends up being relieved. Then the acting secretary of the Navy goes to the vessel and makes an inflammatory speech in which he says that the commander was either stupid or naive if he didn't think the memo would leak. And this very quickly polarized into two camps, one that thought that Captain Crozier did the right thing and he stuck his neck out for his men at a time of potential duress, and another that was very sharply critical of him for broadcasting information that exposed the condition of forces that way. Where do you come down on this? I have to say I come down on the latter side. Uh, you know, he, uh, Captain Crozier, may be a very good captain and had a distinguished career, but I think this is really about civilian control of the military. Uh, you know, I think uh, President Trump has the authority, uh, or the Navy secretary, who he's delegated it to, to keep in command the people he has confidence in. And uh, yes, uh, the captain has an, a very strong interest in protecting the health of his crew, but I think that's subordinate to the civilian policies, and the civilian policy here is don't publicly transmit information on the readiness of our forces. Uh, having the, the Chinese in particular, but other rival nations know that one of our aircraft carriers is combat ineffective and is going to uh, has a captain who wants to head into port uh, and take the ship out of action uh, temporarily uh, gives an advantage. I think to the in fact I think the Chinese uh, right away steamed one of the steamed their own little carrier out to try to highlight or take advantage of the reduction uh, in our forces there. Uh, so I, I, I don't—I mean, I see the—I mean, I sympathize with the, the captain's case, but it's, I still think that's got to be subordinated to civilian policies. And I think people who are, uh, you know, attacking President Trump, for example, calling it almost criminal, are people who are undermining that principle. And that's the principle that really underlies any successful democracy. I agree with John. I think this has to be a command and control issue. Uh, the one point that I would want to add to what he said is, in order to go public, the very thing you have to show is that you've gone through the internal process, and the only thing that everybody done is a strong arm, you stiff arm, you refuse to talk to you, and so forth. It is not, in my view, enough to say, I disagree with the policy. If they've had a policy and they've reviewed this on the merits, then I think if you're in the service, you have to do by it. If you can show that there was willful concealment and dishonesty on the part of everybody involved in this, which I don't think you can, then the case might be a little bit closer. Uh, but what has to sort of understand, this is one guy, the reason why the principle is so important is that if you have 10 captains on 10 different ships making similar kinds of pleas in different kinds of ways, uh, then in effect what happens is the entire command structure will fall apart. Uh, so I think what you have to do is you have to stop it with the first of these situations in order to make it very, very 
clear that you're not going to get some kind of a, a repetition. I mean, this is an old issue when you teach military law, not Roman law, John, but military law. Roman exactly law. When, when do you go out of the command structure in order to make some kind of a protest? And when I taught it, it became very, very clear very quickly that the cases in which that might even be credible, let alone correct, are very, very few indeed. So I think it's an important issue. There obviously reasons to be concerned on both sides. But I think in the end, the relieving of the man of his command is probably the correct decision. So uh, let's turn to something that in a more normal news cycle might have been the story that we started with. A few weeks ago, it was announced that the president was firing Michael Atkinson, who's the inspector general for the Intelligence Committee. And Atkinson, of course, was the one who let the whistleblower report be known that eventually led to the impeachment trial. And the president also announced around the same time that he was axing Glenn Fine, who was the acting inspector general for the Pentagon and was going to be monitoring the spending coming out in the pandemic response. And some Republicans, including uh, Chuck Grassley, Mitt Romney, uh, Susan Collins, were part of a group of senators who were pretty unhappy with this, uh, sent a letter asking for an explanation from the administration. And Richard, this is being talked about in some circles as a kind of crisis of the president trying to dodge accountability and install only his his sympathists in these positions. Are, are you that alarmed by this? I'm always alarmed by any time you see an action taken by a president in the assertion of his own authority, which also works for his own benefit. Uh, the problem when you start looking at the inspector general, I think, is more complicated than that, because I, it seems to me that he took a fair number of liberties in allowing that report to go forward. I don't remember all the statutory details, which I did at the time that it went on. Uh, but it turned out he didn't dot every die, didn't cross every T. It was pretty clear that this thing should not have been put to the form in which it was done. And so I think what happens is that the way in which Trump survives this politically, if he does it at all, is to show that there was, in this particular case, a serious misfeasance of duty. So even though the appointment is at will as a matter of law, the appointment could be demonstrated as a matter of for cause, as a matter of policy. And, and I think that the better ground of doing that would be to do that. Uh, the president pays a terrible price under these particular cases if, in fact, what he does is make a naked assertion of authority, which may be correct, but which is impolitica. He has to place a political audience as well as a legal audience. And sometimes Mr. Trump is tone deaf on those issues. It certainly seemed to be the case that he just made a fool of himself when he started to talk about his own absolute power with respect to the ability to shut things down and got hammered from every side. So I think that this is a piece. And I think he really has to learn. As far as the second case, internal, whatever it was, I don't know enough about that to have a really informed position. Um, it's clear that I think the same kind of principle applies, is that when there are government officials who have essentially have frustrated your policy, you could pretty much remove them for cause. But the lower you go down in the system, I think the less imperative it is for you to make public explanations of what is going to happen. I think Trump has always been faced by that. He also had the problem with respect to uh, the ambassador with respect to all of the stuff that took place so, uh, long ago with the original discussions that he had had. Um, I can't even remember the country. Uh, which country was it? Um, was it the impeachment crisis? Yes. Ukraine. How can you forget Ukraine? Yeah, Ukraine, right? I mean, uh, you know, at that point, you know, he got rid of his ambassador from the Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, he said, well, she was defying policy. I think certainly you have to have somebody who's loyal there. But I think you have to be really aware when you start to do these things about the, the images, because the political price that you can pay can be very, very high. And in some cases, I think you probably deserve to pay that. I mean, Trump has the following added difficulty. His reputation as somebody who goes off half-cocked all the time means that every time he wants to do something, he's not going to get a presumption of legitimacy that might go to a president who seems to be more sober and deliberative in the way in which he acts. John, what's your reaction to the IG firings? Yeah, I, I hate these inspector generals to start with. <laughs> and then I, putting that aside, I think this guy Atkinson, boy, there's a bird that really likes Atkinson out here, right? He's <laughs> really trying to stop me from talking to this guy. Well, he's actually, when, when you say you hate the IGs, as you go into this, can you just give, this is one of these things that everybody pretends to have an opinion about when it comes back into the news. Can you just give our audience a quick refresher on the role of an inspector general? So they actually addressed this kind of, you know, this problem in government, which ultimately led to the independent counsel statute. It's this idea of how do you 
prove to the public or to Congress that you aren't engaged in a conflict of interest. So I think the early inspector generals come for the military, and they I think they really become come into prominence, the very early ones in the Civil War, because if you're the president and you're the executive branch or the commander in chief, how do you prove that you aren't wasting money or abusing powers and so on? So you know, the, the executive branch sometimes has an interest in having someone who's kind of independent, maybe not under their direct control, to show to the rest of the world that there is no conflict of interest, there's no theft of money, embezzlement, misuse of uh, appropriations, and so on. The reason I don't like them is because um, from those beginnings, Congress in the post-Watergate period tried to take them over and kind of make them agents of Congress, like congressional moles in the executive branch. So they talked about trying to make it impossible to fire inspector generals, which didn't get into the law, into the Inspector General's Act in the end. Um, although, there, but so what? But what they did is they they tried to give the Inspector General the right to independently report to Congress. So, you know, if you work in the executive branch, you report to your superiors. Ultimately, that goes up to the president. And under the Constitution, the president is the head of the executive branch. So Congress created these offices that would give these inspector generals the right to avoid all of that and just go right to Congress. Uh, and that's why, so I, that's why I don't like them constitutionally, because they deviate from the constitutional structure of three independent branches. Now, with Atkinson in particular, even putting aside that constitutional problem, I think the president had grounds to fire him for insubordination. Because you may not remember, but back then uh, with the Ukraine mess, the way it started was, right, you had this guy, allegedly a member of the CIA, right, file a compl whistleblower complaint with the IG, this guy Atkinson that the president was trying to trade favors, political favors for foreign aid with Ukraine. Atkinson said he had a right to report that to Congress. And the claim he made was that the president is part of the intelligence community because his jurisdiction is only over the, the – Atkinson does no right to do anything right. other than study the intelligence community. And so the interesting thing is I think – uh, the Justice Department was called in to weigh in on this question, and the Justice Department held that Atkinson was wrong, that the president is above the intelligence community. I think I think Justice Department is correct here. And so Atkinson went ahead and he wanted to, he refused to obey that opinion and went ahead and released his released the whistleblower complaint anyway. I think that's grounds for removal right there is that he refused to be bound by the opinion of the Department of Justice on a question of federal law. And so I think the president should have fired him then actually not now uh, but and I so but I, I but but that just you know obscures the larger issue which is that these inspector generals are an effort by Congress to insert people who are loyal to them into the executive branch. And I, and that's why I generally don't like any of them. Well, John, what makes it even worse is he's waited so long. Yeah, I agree. And, and so what happens is he, he is being so the president, maybe you don't yes. do it on the day. Maybe you wait till the impeachment trial is over. But why do you want to wait even further? Um, the timing issues, I think, is extremely important. And, and Trump is just not a man of nuance with respect to these things. But now that you remind me what the particular element was, uh, this was not a close question of statutory interpretation or regulatory interpretation on the question of whether or not the president is part of the intelligence service. Uh, the intelligence service reports to the president. The president president isn't part of the thing that reports to him. Uh, if he's part of the intelligence service, he's part of the State Department, he's a part of every branch of government in the United States, and he has no distinctive position in his own office. So I think you're absolutely right about all of this. Um, I only wish that Trump would able to do these things a bit more literally, because what happens is every time he does something right, he kicks up a storm. And every time he does something wrong, which is fairly often, he kicks up a bigger storm. Uh, so this is not the man, I think, who's steady at the helm. Uh, when you start having these kinds of crises that involve an interaction between public perception on the one hand and, and legal controls creates, and entitlements on the other. Weird, it creates this weird impression like he's sitting there going, well, okay, let's get those masks and send them over there. Oh, there's a sky I forgot to screw over for Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs>
so speaking of IGs, actually, let me let me get you guys to react to the recent report that we got from the Justice Department Inspector General on the FISA process, because we had heard before that there were some pretty serious problems in the FBI's use of FISA in the Carter Page probe. But this new report says it goes further than that. And I'm going to read you an excerpt. This is from a piece that um, Greg Reed wrote at Fox News. Quote, in four of the 29 cases the DOJ inspector general reviewed, the FBI did not have any so-called Woods files at all, referring to mandatory documentation demonstrating that it had independently corroborated key factual assertions in its surveillance warrant applications. In three of those applications, the FBI couldn't confirm that Woods documentation ever existed. The other 25 applications contained an average of 20 assertions not properly supported with Woods materials. One application contained 65 unsupported claims. The IG notes in the report, as a result of our audit work to date, and as described below, we do not have confidence that the FBI has executed its Woods procedures in compliance with FBI policy. So, John, we are already kind of in limbo with FISA right now, it was due for reauthorization right around the time the coronavirus stuff turned into a brush fire. We still don't have a long-term uh, fix in place here. So what does this report tell us about what needs to happen? Is this about fixing the statute or is this about fixing the organizational culture in places like the FBI? I, I think it's the latter, but uh, you know, I, I worry that people will get so hung up on the failures of the FBI to properly follow the statute, they're going to miss the bigger picture, which is that the statute was used for a purpose it was actually designed to stop. The whole point of the statute being passed after Watergate was to prevent uh, another president like Nixon from using the power to surveil enemy spies and turn it against his political enemies. In fact, Nixon did exactly uh, what the FBI did to him, did to Trump. I'm sorry, the, Nixon used the surveillance power to surveil the Democratic Party during a presidential campaign. And it's, it's just incredible to me still that the FBI took this statute designed to make sure that never happened again and used it to investigate and surveil a presidential campaign of a major party. That That's the bigger issue. The, the I think the secondary issue is what this inspector general found, which is the FBI itself is is just like Keystone Copish here. They can't actually even follow not just the statute, but their own procedures for following the statute. Now, so some people might say this is just inherent in FISA, so get rid of the whole thing. Uh, I fear that's uh, sort of the attitude that Senator Rand Paul is taking. I, I, you know, my my answer would be, I would I think the mistake was back in the FISA law to make this a system that looked like the one we have for criminal cases where the FBI gets a warrant from a judge. The system used to be the president would have to approve each and every one of these things, and he would be politically accountable for them. You can see, I think the bigger problem is that the FBI being able to go to a judge and claim they have something that looks like a warrant has led them to be sloppy because they can hide behind the court and blame the courts for the power to do this, not themselves. And I think that's the real root of the problem. But yes, the IG report will trigger, ultimately there will be a huge overhaul of FISA. And I I, I wish we would consider as an option just scrapping it and going back to the way it used to be and get the, the judges and the courts out of it and making the executive branch responsible, just like they are for covert action. And if Congress wow. thinks they're abusing the power, then they can you know, they can let them, let them have it and they could cut the funds off for it, just like Congress does with covert action. Um, I have a slightly different view. Uh, there is the old Roman maxim, quis custodiat custodies, who guards the guardians? And so what happens is you're always running one step behind. You get an abusive president, then what you do is you give a strengthened FBI. Then you get an abusive FBI, and the question is, what are you supposed to do about that? Uh, but no matter whom you put in charge of this situation, there is always, if there is not the right form of culture and morale, a strong sense that they can abuse this. The, the thing that drove all of this was 
was that every Democrat had two beliefs. One is that Trump was the incarnation of evil on any and all issues, and two, that if they really managed to get him, none of this would come to light because Hillary Clinton would protect them when she became president of the United States. The first of these assumptions was true. The second one turned out to be false. So what do you want to do? Do you want to put political accountability in the president? Well, he makes secret decisions, and he could be in trouble. I, I'm not—that's not probably what I want to do. I think what I would want to do is something slightly different, and I have no confidence, but at least I will put it out, which is I think one of the real problems with respect to FISA is that essentially it is an ex parte hearing in which you only hear the government's case before a group of judges, all of whom are appointed by the same chief justice. I think what has to happen is there has to be somebody on the other side of all of these things, sworn to secrecy and so forth, but, but whose job is to essentially to probe and to have the ability to ask questions questions of this guy so that when that report comes forward, there could be a counter-report. And instead of it just being a unilateral proceeding, given the sensitivity of it, I think that there has to be, in effect, some bilateral situation. Uh, I don't think you have to do it in every case. There are obviously emergencies, but the correct response with respect to an emergency is you may have the power to go forward today, but you're going to be subject to review and arguable sanctions tomorrow if we find out that this was precipitous and unwarranted. Um, it takes more complicated procedures to deal with the constant threat of ill will, and I think that's what we have to do in this particular case. And the whole situation in, in the FISA court was terrible. Um, uh, when it turned out that Devin Nunes basically wrote a letter to them saying all this stuff stinks, they essentially they threw it back to him, thank you, but no thank you. And then when they decided that there was real evidence coming from the IG's report, what they did is they dated their knowledge not from the Nunes letter, but from the much later responses that came uh, months later. And I think that was bad. So I think the FISA court has to be reconstituted. I think it should not all be appointed by the chief justice. I think there has to be some countervailing power under these circumstances. And I also think that there has to be some criminal sanctions that are going to be brought to bear against FBI agencies who are in constant disregard of their particular rules. I remind you, this is only with respect to the internal procedures. The other point we have is there's still this Durham investigation hanging out there, a slowdown by coronavirus. But there's absolutely no reason to have confidence that everything was absolutely hunky-dory before things got to the internal FBI processes. It may well have been that there was a huge amount of FBI corruption and collusion with other parties on the way that this information got there. So I think there's very good reason to be very pessimistic about this whole sorry episode. I think it's really hard to solve. I'm not sure John is right to say that political accountability will solve it, but I'm not really sure if he's wrong what is the ideal solution, if there is one at all. We only have three or four minutes left, but the last thing I'll ask you guys about, because we still have our priorities, to the relief of many people in my neck of the woods here in the greater New York area, Tom Brady is out of New England. He will be the quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers next season to the extent that there is a next season. But Tom Brady is a man who is jealous of his IP, and he has now filed for trademarks on the phrases Tampa Bay, just let that sink in for a moment, and Tampa Brady. In that former case, Tampa Bay is actually a slogan that the uh, Dan Patrick show, the sports radio show, was already putting on T-shirts. Now, you may remember that Brady got shot down a while ago when he tried to trademark Tom Terrific, and he got a lot of grief for it because of the association with Tom Seaver. Richard, is he going to fare better here? What are the parameters on these trademarks or a kind of personal branding like this? Well, I mean, generally speaking, I think nobody's ever gotten something for something as inane as that. And I think the trademark laws would require at least some degree of originality. And it would also require that these things not be in common use before the trademark went. And it would require that he prove that he was the one who thought of it as opposed to everybody else. I think, in effect, that he probably will lose this 90 percent, I would guess, although I'm not a super con, you know, trademark excerpt. But I think, in effect, that the ill will that he's going to generate by sort of posturing in this particular fashion is a huge kind of mistake. And I would basically tell him, uh, rejoice in your six Super Bowl rings, rejoice in the big contract that you've gotten, rejoice in your endorsements, and don't try and play this penny ante stuff, which is just going to make everybody very upset. Is it really going to be the case if some newspaper reporter uses this in a story which is covering him, that they're going to have to pay royalties? I think the only thing that he could hope is that people can't use that to brand 
brands, some other product that he wants to put out. But he's got protection against that by virtue of his protection of his name and likeness with respect to commercial uses. So I don't think he gets very much by this, but I think he could lose a lot in terms of his good reputation and good name if he still has them. John, I know you have something to say about this, and I also know it oh. probably has nothing to do with intellectual property law. Yes, I, I just want to say that Tom Brady should, will always go down in the history of football as participating in one of the greatest achievements in the NFL, which is the Philadelphia Eagles winning the <laughs> Super Bowl at last. <laughs> John, we love the way in which well, you bring all right. things back to Roman law. <laughs> that's okay, true. It's the, I, the Philadelphia Eagles are my Roman law. That, now, that should be on a T-shirt and copyrighted. I could sell millions of those in Philadelphia. I, I, don't, I, don't, think you, I don't think you could. I, I think this should be turned down just on the grounds of trying to make Tampa even the slightest bit cool. Uh, all right, gentlemen, we're going to call it. Thank you all, as always, for listening to Law Talk. Remember to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Wash your hands. Keep your distance. Don't send me any Zoom invites. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the faculty lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. Fun show. Fun show. It was fun. Why did I forget Ukraine? Is that real?